Welcome to Eczema Out Loud from the National Eczema Association. I'm Danny Morshead. Why does eczema flare in pubic and genital areas? What does the treatment course look like for eczema in these areas? Can you use steroids there? Why are my nipples so itchy? On today's episode of Eczema Out Loud, Dr. Peter Leo is here to help us answer these questions and more. Dr. Leo is an assistant professor of clinical dermatology and pediatrics at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. He's also the founding director of the Chicago Integrative Eczema Center. Dr. Leo, thank you for coming on the podcast again. We're happy to have you back. And let's get right into it. We'll be working our way sort of from the lower half of the body towards the top. So I'll start with my questions about pubic and genital eczema, and we'll move our way up towards nipples. Maybe we'll just start off with why eczema flares in pubic and genital areas. Sure. So, you know, one of the things about eczema is that it really can, it can affect any part of the body and it often does. So while there are kind of typical places that we see it, and in fact, part of the diagnostic criteria is to have the pattern and the distribution that fits with certain ages. So for example, babies tend to have the cheeks involved kids and toddlers will often have the flexural areas. So kind of like the crease of the armpits behind the knees. Um, we, we see those commonly. Adults tend to have what we call the more acral pattern, right? So the, the face and neck, but also the um, sometimes hands and feet. So kind of the tips that we'll see, but you really can have it anywhere in between. And some patients actually have it everywhere all at once. And we have a name for that erythrodermic, when your whole body or pretty much all of your body is red and involved with eczema. So you can imagine it anywhere. One of the places that is really troublesome is the groin area, kind of the underwear region, the genital area. The biggest problem there is that typically eczema spares that area. So if you kind of read the textbooks, it'll say usually the diaper region is spared. And that is true that usually it's spared. And we think because that area is protected sort of from the environment, but it also is tends to be a little bit warmer, a little bit more moist, especially in babies. You know, if they, if they have some urine in the diaper, that kind of moisturizes the, the area. And sometimes it's spared, but it doesn't always get that lucky. Sometimes people actually have quite a bit of activity in that area. And one of the things that's special about the, the groin area and the genitals is that the skin is extremely delicate. So not only do we know that the itch and scratch cycle can happen very rapidly there and change the skin very rapidly, but we're also have to be, you know, we're very limited. We have to be particularly careful about what kind of medicines we use there because we know that things that might be fine for your arms or legs are not so good in that area with super delicate skin. So what does a treatment course look like for eczema in those areas? So it could look very similar to what we do elsewhere, but on a gentler scale. So I often treat it the same way I would treat the eyelids because that skin is so delicate. So if we're going to use a topical steroid, we're going to use a very mild one. We're going to really use it for a short period of time at any at any burst, you know, so maybe like just a few days and then we want to take a break. Ideally, when we can, we try to avoid steroids altogether in that area. And sometimes we're able to do that. Um, and we would want to use one of the non-steroidal agents like tacrolimus or pemicrolimus or some of the newer things that are out, uh, chrysoboral, of course. Or I use a lot of my more gentle treatments that are kind of integrative. You know, So I'm a big fan of sunflower seed oil and I'm a big fan of coconut oil. Uh, I'm also a big fan of topical vitamin B12. We have a special cream made for our patients that uses topical vitamin B12 and that's very gentle. So those are all super safe and gentle uh, in, you know, as long as the, the patient's not allergic to, to one of those things or one of the ingredients they're in and they can help. The problem is they're kind of modest. So if somebody's really miserable and they're super inflamed and irritated and open, then 
then I feel like it's not very fair for me just to say, well, try coconut oil this week and let me know because a lot of times they'll call me at the end of the week and say, oh, I'm still pretty miserable. Maybe it helped a little, but it's often not enough. So we really try to use an appropriate treatment uh, that you know gets people under control relatively quickly. Otherwise, it's a lot of suffering, especially if it's affecting sleep. And during the day, I have patients who are so embarrassed because they say, you know, it's so itchy and I'm constantly fidgeting and scratching and everyone's looking at me because I keep you know touching myself. It's so odd. And I completely understand. It's, it's a really difficult area. Maybe you know you wouldn't think it would be so bad because you can't see it. But of course, if everybody sees you moving about and jostling and trying to cross your legs, then it's very, very embarrassing for patients. So I want to get to some of the itch relief techniques, uh, but before we get to that, I have some questions about using steroids and those more potent medications. Could they affect our fertility if we use them in genital areas, specifically in men? Yeah, so I'd say, you know, generally speaking, um, the, the, the side effects are the same as other areas of the body but just much, much more enhanced because that area is so delicate. So things like in the short term, we can actually start to see uh, color color changes. So sometimes we can get a little bit of lightening of the pigment and sometimes true loss of pigment with topical steroids. Skin thinning, it can start to look like cigarette paper. It gets that kind of funny atrophied look. If you keep pushing, stretch marks. And those stretch marks actually can be irreversible. The first two things tend to be reversible that I mentioned, but if you get true stretch marks, they tend to be permanent which, I mean, they get better over time, but they're there. So that's really, really disturbing when you see that. Um, Some people actually will get increased hair growth in an area where they're putting topical steroid. And then, you know, maybe most controversially, but in some ways, most importantly, there is this whole concept of topical steroid addiction and withdrawal, sometimes called TSW or TSWS, topical steroid withdrawal syndrome. And there's a whole range of this. I mean, there's a, there's no doubt there's a true physiologic withdrawal, meaning if you use a strong steroid to a really inflamed area and you stop abruptly, yeah, sometimes it does come back with a vengeance. Like that's the thing. I don't think anybody would argue against that being real, but The second thing is more of this kind of chronic inflammatory state that then can persist in some patients. Um, Again, this is maybe what we call TSWS, and that's a little bit more confusing but uh, and and controversial, but I do think there's something to it. And I think the genital area is one of the places we see it. So face and genitals tend to be a common area. It can happen from steroid use probably anywhere on the body. And even if you're not using it on those areas, but if you look at the literature, those are the two areas that are particularly and specifically flagged as being important areas for this. Sure. And, And do we know anything about fertility? And steroids in those areas? Yeah. So we don't, to my knowledge, um, and definitely, you know, medicine is an ever-changing science and we're always learning new things, but steroids have been around since the 1950s. So we might know more about steroids than almost anything else we put on or in our body. Um, But yeah, to my knowledge, no, there's no connection with fertility with the topical use of steroids there. And of course, we even have patients who need to take potent oral steroids, um, which we try never to do for atopic dermatitis or eczema. But for other conditions, if you have lupus or dermatomyositis or you have kidney disease, you might need to be on oral steroids. And of course, in that case, it's not only going in your skin, it's actually pumping through the organs, right? So sometimes we we kind of, I'll tease a colleague who's worried about using a topical steroid on the face. They're like, wait, can we use a topical steroid on the face? And I'll say, well, yes, because you were talking about giving the patient an oral steroid and we're going to put a little bit on their skin, but you were giving it them by mouth. It's going to absorb in, in their gut, into their blood, and it's actually going to pump through their eye. You're putting it into the eye when you take it, right? So when you take an oral steroid, it's actually pumping through your reproductive organs, literally through all the blood vessels, right? So, so yeah, we feel, we feel like that is, um, it, it's, it's better when we, we don't need to do oral medicines or systemic medicines. Whenever we can treat topically, we know, although that by no stress, 
stretch is are they perfectly safe they're they're definitely safer when used correctly because we're exposing so much less of the body to that medicine okay what about yeast infections and other similar infections are people with eczema in genital areas more susceptible to those types of infections I would say maybe. I don't know offhand if there's been studies that really show that. I can say in my experience, there's a lot of confusion about yeast. So yeast is one of those things that gets called upon by many different practitioners and providers and used in a lot of different ways, some of which I think are interesting and instructive, others of which I think can be counterproductive. So we'll hear people, they, they kind of talk about chronic candida or sometimes pronounced candida infections. And sometimes I think there's something to it, but other times I feel like, huh, do we really mean this yeast or do we just mean some other more of a, an inflammatory chronic condition that this is the, the word we're putting on there because it can be confusing. So uh, the other issue is that many people, if they see redness or irritation in a fold, they say, oh, this is probably yeast. But it ends up being a little bit more complex than that. Of course, there's a condition called intertrigo, which doesn't necessarily have to have yeast. It just means that there's really irritation between skin that's opposing, so in the folds. And of course, eczema or atopic dermatitis can happen in folds all the time. So the you know the elbow creases, and sometimes in the armpits and the groin as well, but it doesn't necessarily have to do with yeast. So I think part of our job in dermatology is to be smart enough and asking the questions and doing the tests when when necessary to say, do we need to do a scrape? Do we need to look for hyphae, the little yeast forms under the microscope? And I do. I look for them if I'm not sure. Do we need to treat for yeast empirically to see if that's what's going on? That can be another approach. If we're not sure, sometimes it's good to purely treat for that because it turns out our anti-yeast treatments are excellent. They're very, very powerful and almost never fail. And in fact, I'll, I'll sometimes get a referral of a case say, we think it's a chronic yeast thing. We've done all this stuff, oral anti-yeast, topical anti-yeast, all these things. And I say, hmm, at what point do you say maybe it's not yeast? <laughs> you know, Because sometimes, yes, you could have something that's super resistant, but sometimes you're just treating the wrong thing. And, and by far, that's the most common scenario I see. People blame yeast for something that's not yeast related, and then we can go a different way about it and help. But, but to answer the question, I, I think it's possible that there are more yeast infections, and we certainly know wherever there's damaged skin barrier, there certainly are more bacterial infections. So I don't think it's a huge stretch to know to think that there could be more yeast infections secondarily and viral infections, right? The one we know most is eczema herpeticum, where the cold sore virus takes advantage of broken skin. But that can happen presumably with other things as well. So while we're on the topic of yeast and infections, how can you find out if what you're experiencing is actually atopic dermatitis or could it be seborrheic dermatitis or maybe even a completely different type of skin issue? Absolutely. So the number one thing I spend my day doing now, because my clinic is almost all referred patients, the number one question we start with is, are we sure this is atopic dermatitis? Because everybody kind of has the same basic story, super bad eczema, nothing's working, they can't seem to get them better. Can you have a look? And so I always have to start from scratch because part of the reason it might not be working is because we're literally maybe treating the wrong thing. It's not what we thought it was. And so what do we do? We can do cultures of the skin. We can do biopsies of the skin. And sometimes, as I said, we can even do empiric treatment, meaning we would try something. If we can't be sure, we'd say, okay, listen, let's treat for yeast. You know, we'll know in just a few days and then we'll touch base. And if it did nothing or got worse, then we say, okay, this is very unlikely to be yeast because we've done X, Y, and Z. Um, some things are easy to culture for. Staph is pretty easy. We can do a culture and get it. Yeast is a little bit harder. Um, cultures can be more hit or miss. Candida tends to be culturable, but sometimes you miss it. And if there's tons of inflammation, 
you can get a false negative. You can do a culture and they tell you nothing grew, but it may be because the immune system is so active and there's so much inflammation that it just didn't really persist, but it still could be a causative agent. So it ends up being actually really hard. And anybody who's too confident, I'm like, hmm, if you're so confident, you probably actually haven't, you don't really understand it very well because there's a lot of complexity that goes into it. Even the teacher's that I looked up to and, and still, of course, still do that I revered, they would look me point, you know, look me in the face and point blank say, we can't tell. This is too hard. They look too similar. And those are the smartest folks I've ever seen who wrote the textbooks on it. So if they couldn't do it just from a glance and it wasn't, you know, something trivial to them, I'm very suspicious when somebody's so confident about the diagnosis for these complex areas. Sure. And can you touch on seborrheic dermatitis in these more sensitive areas, the armpits, the genital areas? Is that common? Sure. Yes, it is. So seborrheic dermatitis is definitely in the family of eczemas, right? Sometimes it's actually in the list of some of the, sometimes people say that there are seven types of eczema. It's one of them for sure. And in babies in particular, it's extremely common. So anytime you've seen a baby with cradle cap, right, that's seborrheic dermatitis. That's really the same family. And the problem with subderm is that it can be very tough to treat. It's very chronic for a lot of patients, and it can mimic and overlap with eczema for sure. In fact, one of my teachers in Boston used to say that many of the babies who have bad cradle cap, that can actually become eczema, kind of turns into it over time, which is really interesting. Now, in adults, we often think of them as slightly different because seborrheic dermatitis seems to be a closer cousin of psoriasis. And those guys seem to be on the other side of the immune spectrum, sometimes called the Th1 side, whereas eczema is on the more of the allergic side, the Th2 side. So they often are separated, but I do have a lot of overlap patients. That being said, the classic textbook presentation for seborrheic dermatitis is dandruff on your scalp. And then you get kind of red and sometimes flaky. Sometimes we say it's a greasy scale around your eyebrows, around your nasolabial fold, so kind of your laugh lines on your face, um, and sometimes on the mid-chest. But also you can get this inverse pattern in the folds, armpits and groin, and sometimes even on the genitals. Because again, psoriasis, as we were saying, it's a close cousin of this. That often affects the genitals. So it can be really confusing. And psoriasis can also be itchy. And it can be red and flaky, so it's very tough. And I do have real patients that have both eczema and psoriasis and, you know, frankly, the seborrheic dermatitis. So it can be tangled. The treatments are fortunately pretty similar. There's some overlap, but they're not perfect. And so sometimes if we're really stuck and I'm thinking, gosh, some of this really does make me think this is more psoriasis or subderm, I will just go ahead and try that approach. I'll say, let's do a different approach and see. And then with good follow-up, I mean, all I need is a week or two. You know, we can we can ask the question. And, and the way this has a fancy name in medicine and in Latin, it's diagnosis ex juventibus. You make a diagnosis by what helps. So we're going to try something specific. Obviously, if you put steroids on it, that kind of helps everything that's too broad. But if you say we're going to do this specific, more specific treatment, and we're going to report back, that can help us not only get the patient better, but also know better what we're up against. Interesting. Wow. Okay. Here's a more specific question. Is there a way to reduce pain and burning when peeing with eczema around the urethra? Yes. So I would say eczema around the urethra is exceedingly rare. So anybody that has pain and burning around the urethra really needs a good um, a good workup. We need to make sure there's nothing else going on. Everything from urethral stricture, if there's scarring or irritation around it, there's a condition called lichen sclerosis that often does affect the genitals and can affect the urethra. Of course, infections as well. Sometimes certain infections can be present. So I would say if somebody told me they're having burning, I would be very, very anxious that it's not eczema until we found out. And so the answer to the question really would be 
get a good diagnosis, make sure we see the right person. Hopefully they're doing cultures and making sure everything else is ruled out and then really getting to the underlying cause of that inflammation and maybe stricture if it's starting to, to tighten up and that's why you're they're having pain. Um, I wouldn't want to do any remedy without really getting to the bottom of it. Um, but yeah, that that's alarming to me. Okay, good to know. And is it better to shave the area that has eczema or let your hair grow out around it? Typically shaving is not so good for eczema because especially if we're using a blade, or even clippers that are close, you get little micro cuts. And of course, our old nemesis, Staph aureus, is never far behind. And that can be a real portal of entry where the Staph aureus will now take advantage of these irritated hair follicles and little nicks and cuts. You can have a terrible rip-roaring folliculitis. And I've seen it many times. It can be very uncomfortable. So uh, generally, natural is fine. Um, if someone felt that it was overwhelming and they wanted to trim it, you could trim the, trim it with a very you know good clipper guard. We don't want anything touching the skin itself, though. Um, and that's, that's where I would say it would be the wisest. Great. We'll do a nipple deep dive next. But before we get there, let's talk about itch in the genital areas. Do you have any techniques or tips for relieving itch? Very, very tough as itch everywhere. Um, I think there again, it's because it's so sensitive, we have to be extra careful. I think you can use cooling packs like ice packs uh, gently. We don't want to damage that skin. I do find that uh, keeping the area more open and dry when you can. So when you're home, removing tight-fitting garments, uh, we do feel like a lot of patients will sweat in that area. And we know sweat makes people itchy and uncomfortable. So especially if you know, you're know you in, a, in a, a modern job, you tend to be sitting most of the day, your legs are crossed, it gets warm and sweaty in that area. That's a huge trigger for itch. So as best you can, and of course, if you're working from home, it can be easy. If you're not, it's difficult to take off your pants at the office, but whenever you can, uh, taking taking some the fabric off and, and allowing that, that skin to air out a little bit can be very, very helpful. Don't wear the pants. The doctor has spoken. <laughs> That's right. Someone comes into work on Monday morning in their boxers. Uh, you're not wearing pants. Doctor's order. What can I Here's tell you? Here's the note from Peter Leo. <laughs> okay, let's move up the body to the nipples. We had a lot of nipple related questions. The biggest question was how can we reduce itch for nipple eczema? So nipple eczema is a very common thing. Um, it is one of the characteristic areas of, of eczema involvement for sure. We see it in kids and adults. It can be incredibly uncomfortable. It often gets infected easily. And I've had patients tell me they're getting discharged from their nipple. It's, it's really, it's terrible and incredibly itchy. So unfortunately, I wish I had like a little secret to say, ah, for nipple eczema, we always do this. But the truth is, it's kind of the same thing we would anywhere else. So, you know, good anti-inflammatory, good barrier control. Certainly, we can use some anti-itch topicals. You know, I find them to be variably helpful. Uh, some patients do well with them; others find them, you know, not doing much at all. But generally, by themselves, just using an anti-itch, and there's many on the market from camphor and menthol to promoxine to, you know, there's all these new, even new ones, a strontium-based one, which I kind of like too. They're all cool, over-the-counter stuff, but they tend to be temporary. So I like them as adjuncts. You know, it's like we're going to do this. You know, maybe we're going to use topical ruxolitinib or a topical steroid or tacrolimus or whatever to get the inflammation down. And in the meantime, we can use this kind of throughout the day. But I also do find ice packs can be helpful. So cooling 
And uh, I also do find that uh, some of the hypochlorous acid sprays, they're kind of like little bleach bottle sprays, not true bleach here, uh, because you know you could use bleach bath kind of strength, but we have to be careful with the, with the math on those. But they make these, they're called hypochlorous acid sprays. They're very inexpensive. You can get them over the counter now. They're often marketed. They're, some of them are marketed for eczema, some are for wound care, but they're very dilute antimicrobial, basically the active ingredient of bleach, and they have an anti-itch effect too. So those can be very nice to help a little bit with the bacteria and help with the itch. And um, yeah, there's a bunch of them, like honestly, like less than $10 for a big spray. And those are fantastic. I think those can be very helpful. So you mentioned uh, discharge. Why would we have discharge from eczema on the nipple? And how might we be able to reduce or prevent this? Sometimes the nipple is infected and you actually can get sort of a you know, a nipple infection or even a mastitis that, that happens because the eczema is so bad there. And I've seen that a few times. So if it's pus coming out, we generally have to put them on oral antibiotics and sometimes drain it. We've even had situations where there's been an abscess underneath, which is terrible and very painful. Um, more commonly, we think just because of all the inflammation, there's just kind of a serous fluid, kind of clear fluid discharging just because there's a lot of inflammation and, and swelling or edema in the area. So again, the secret is really to get it under control as quickly as we can. And we're kind of working backwards here, but why is eczema on the nipple so common? And what does the treatment course look like? I wish I knew. That's the that's called the central or fundamental question in dermatology. Why here, but not here? Why did your psoriasis spot go here and not here? Why is your eczema here and not here? We don't really know. The, the ancients would often just invoke the concept of the point of least resistance, locus minoris resistentiae. <laughs> just for some reason, those areas are particularly susceptible, which is kind of a tautology, right? It's like, uh, you didn't tell me anything. You know, we, are, we said, you know, that's, we know it's there, but you're saying because it's there. So it doesn't really help us, but we don't know. It must probably have something to do with the skin barrier and something to do with the the my you know the microflora we know the microbiome is playing a role in all this too, uh, and it may have to do with some of the the milieu of, of different hormones and 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 whatnot. But we don't really know. You know, in closing, I would say that eczema is terrible no matter where it is. But when it's in a funny place, it makes it that much worse, and it can be even more embarrassing and more unpleasant. So it's important that people feel comfortable and know that they're not alone. This is common and it can happen anywhere. And so making sure that we bring that up with whoever's taking care of our eczema is really important because some of these areas do require a little bit of different treatment or sometimes the same treatment, but maybe a slightly different approach, right? In terms of timing or the overall way we're going to do it. So we want to make sure everybody gets the best treatment possible and also the safest one that's going to be effective for them. Great. Thank you so much. We got our takeaways. We got don't close shave, keep the pants off if you can, see your dermatologist. Totally. Loving it. Okay. That's it for my questions. Thank you so much. Anytime. All right. You take good care. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Eczema Out Loud. You can visit the National Eczema Association at www.nationaleczema.org. If you have feedback on this episode, or you'd like to send in a suggestion for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at nationaleczema.org. We hope you'll join us next time.